There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. And today we bring you an interview, an interview I have been looking forward to conducting for a long time. Candidly, didn't know if we would ever get this guest on, but we were very fortunate and enough to make it happen. And today we bring you his very first long-form sit-down interview since leaving the governor's mansion, former Missouri governor, Jay Nixon, so much that we discuss in this interview, and a lot of it you've never heard, and it goes to his upbringing in DeSoto, how he got into politics, his time as attorney general, uh, his time as governor, which was going so well, a convincing reelection in 2012, that he was being discussed as a potential uh, either presidential candidate in 2016 or an ideal running mate potentially for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So much so, as a matter of fact, that he's quoted in Politico magazine, and you hear uh, Jay Nixon and I discuss this in the interview, uh, about how he would have considered running for president had Hillary Clinton not run. But that interview was done before Ferguson. And uh, we discuss Ferguson in detail and his uh, feelings on its impact on his political career. And the thing that I was really, really looking forward to uh, the most, as I'm sure many of you are, his perspective on his dealings with the Rams, uh, the stadium task force, and what transpired with the NFL. And I would imagine after you hear one of his answers, you will be really fired up uh, over the course of this interview. So former Missouri Governor Jay Nixon today, a long-form conversation, his first one, honored that he decided to do it with us, uh, here on the Tim McKernan Show. Without our sponsors, we don't have these interviews. And we want to make sure we thank the HomeLoanExpert.com, Ryan Kelly, for his support of the Tim McKernan Show. And uh, and the thing about Ryan is it's easy for me to do a spot for Ryan because I know Ryan, sent my family to do business with Ryan, and I can easily recommend Ryan to you as well. You can find him online at the HomeLoanExpert.com. And here's the thing that I think people may think about it. They're like, well, I'm not buying a home or I don't really have any interest in refinancing. Well, what about this? Let's, let's take this approach to it. Do you have credit card debt? The average American household has $16,000 worth of credit card debt. And it, listen, it's not, it's not particularly people's fault because the system is set up with those high interest rates that it's very difficult to get out of the hole. And you may have every intention of doing so, but then something pops up. It's an expense that you didn't expect. And the next thing you know, your money's going toward that expense, and it's not going toward paying down that credit card. And not only is it building up with interest, but mentally it gives you some anxiety, I'm sure, to, to sit there and go, ah, oh, I got this sitting here, and there's nothing I can do. I've been trying and trying and trying, and I've only knocked it down a little bit. Well, here is the solution. 
And it's a great solution in 2018. With home values as high as they are and interest rates still as low as they are, capitalize on a cash-out refi with Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team and take care of that credit card. And now you've wiped that clean and you're paying on a much lower interest rate with that home value. That's the move. Let Ryan Kelly and his incredible staff do that for you at the HomeLoanExpert.com. Ryan Kelly, the HomeLoanExpert.com. And if you are going to be buying a home, if you decide to go the purchase route, you're going to need some insurance for that home. So many people just go, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the principal, uh, the interest, and uh, the taxes and the insurance. That's my payment. But how many people really know what you're, you're getting insured? You know it's for your home, but what do you have? I am telling you, one of the biggest revelations in doing the podcast is getting to know James Carlton, James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, and how good he is, how helpful he is. We had a situation this week, as a matter of fact. How about this? I'll tell a little anecdote. Uh, the great John Seymour, executive producer, he is uh, leaving radio, and he had a company car with Inside STL. And he uh, said, hey, here are the keys. I've got a car now. And then the Plowhawk from the Ryan Kelly Morning After was having car issues. And he said, hey, since I'm, I'm in a spot where I don't have a car, can I use the car? And my in- initial instinct was like, of course, yeah, I got the keys here. Take it. Go ahead and, uh, and, and, and have at it. And I'm like, oh, real quickly, I don't know what the insurance situation is on it. And the last thing I want to do is get us in a spot, get him in a spot, get the company in a spot where I might be putting us at risk because it's insured on individuals, not not the company. And so I texted with James Carlton, got answers right away on what the situation was, what we needed to do. Unfortunately, we had to take some steps uh, to get it on the company. And, 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 and I'm telling you, just this is the way it is. To me, when you have that, it was something as important as insurance, but I know it's not something you think about that often because you don't think about it until you need it. It's so helpful because you're dotting I's and crossing T's, and it gives you peace of mind. And that's what James Carlton can do. And he's so good at his job with his staff as well. So you know if you call, you're going to have a human pick up if you're calling during business hours. 314-961-4800 or online at carltoninsurance.net. James Carlton, State Farm Insurance, based out of Webster Groves, right here in St. Louis. And uh, finally, uh, Johnny Landoff. Chevrolet at uh, Highway 270 in the Washington Elizabeth exit. I have gotten to know the Landoffs here over the last year or so. And whether it be uh, Johnny, who you've seen on commercials for years, uh, or his sons, I can't say enough about how good these people are and the business they conduct and why they've been in business for decades. And you know they're going to be in business for decades more. Uh, Going back to the Plowhawks car situation. Uh, he took it into a dealership, and it just sat there for like four days, and that's why he was dealing with problems. Well, the next thing you know, I'm talking about the situation, not naming any dealership, and Sam Landoff's listening to the show, and he texts me, and he goes, hey, have the Plowhawk reach out to me or give him my number, and we're going to get this thing taken care of. These are that's, that's the kind of way you operate a business. That's how you stay in business for decades. You build up trust and relationships in the community, and people know to go to you. They don't even think about it. They're like, when I need a new car, I need my car worked on, pre-owned car, whatever, I'm going to Landoff. And that's what I want you to think as well. Online at Landoff.com. First-class family running a first-class business. Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet. So all of these sponsors make these interviews possible. And as the Seamaster knows... This was one of the interviews I really, really wanted to get when we sat down to start this show 
uh, almost now uh, approaching a uh, year, uh, getting into the 10th month of it. And uh, I wanted to hear what he had to say about so many different topics because Jay Nixon truly was considered to be one of the prime candidates to be involved in the 2016 presidential election before Ferguson, a moderate Democratic governor from a red state in the Midwest, which could help lead to getting that state blue from the Democratic perspective. He had some value. And if he was going to be a running mate, I'm telling you, and we talk about it, point blank ask him, if Ferguson doesn't happen, are you still in politics? You'll hear his answer and also his decision uh, regarding the National Guard. I mean, we go into this stuff and uh, he specifically says, and uh, we consider it a great compliment. That's for sure. Didn't even know he knew our show existed. Uh, but he now works at a law firm, uh, Dowd Bennett, with Jack Danforth, who has been on the show. And I guess Jack gave a, a positive uh, referral on the program. And so he sat down. And when I started getting into the Ram stuff, he says, and you'll hear him say it, I like this format because I know it's not going to be edited down into little sound bites and I can I can tell the whole story. And the whole story includes him and Stan Kroenke knowing each other, going back to college. Uh, in sitting in a room together one-on-one in December 2015. So there's a lot here. I'm looking forward to you getting a chance to listen to it. As always, I welcome your feedback. I ask for your positive reviews on iTunes, wherever you may podcast. Tima Kernan at InsideSTL.com. Questions from the audience, your suggestions for guests, feel free to email at any point. So without further ado, it is our pleasure to present to you here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, his very first long-form audio slash radio slash podcast slash television interview since leaving the governor's mansion. Ladies and gentlemen, former Missouri governor, Jay Nixon. Should I call you governor? Should I call you Jay? what's, What's the proper when you're no longer governor counselor now that you're back in practice what do i what do i do i mean once a governor you can always be called governor jay is fine uh-huh. after being in politics for 30 years i've been called so much worse than either one of them so anything that's not i'll, I'll take whatever you got yeah, whatever. all right i think i'm probably going to default the governor that's fine. Uh, but it's uh it's, it's an honor to have you in here thank, thank you, you so much thank you um and uh and as i was saying i played golf with your son and so i just wanted on the record that Will Nixon hits the ball further than I think anybody I've ever played with. It's it's something to behold. I don't know. I was, did that come from you or, or what? Uh, not really. Um, well, I, actually, the funny thing is, you know, everybody asks me whether I play because they see your son play. And my uh-huh. other son played on a golf team in high school. He's a decent player, but yeah. not like Will. And I kind of quit playing once, I, once my 11-year-old son was taking it to me pretty bad, both in, in distance and in score. Now, he's uh, he's a pretty good athlete, too. He played basketball and, yeah. and whatnot, but uh, uh, looking looking to uh, to get back in it and just in, uh, having an interesting summer. Yeah, he is uh, something to behold. What a player. And uh, and it was funny because I was when I was playing with him, that's when I got the email about you doing this interview, and I've been looking forward to having this conversation ever since we started the show. But I wanted to get in, into how you got into politics and, and being a governor. I remember uh, being attorney general, incredibly popular attorney general. That is for yeah. certain. Um, but you grew up in DeSoto. Right. So what was, what was, what were their aspirations as a young boy to be like the next? Well, I mean, born and raised in DeSoto, Missouri. I mean, my dad was the mayor. My mom was the president of the school board. People ask me how I got started in politics. The story is really pretty easy. We were kind of the 1960s type family. We had dinner together every night. Um, and we would sit down to dinner and the phone would ring. 
And the mayor would look at the president of the school board, and then they'd point at me and my two sisters, but they pointed at me, and I would go answer the phone because it was a constituent call. Uh-huh. So I started in politics in constituent service. <laughs> I would go into the kitchen, listen to their complaint about their kid getting cut from the basketball team so the coach needed to be fired or, or their sewer backed up so they needed a new sewer or whatever, and I would come back to the table then, and I would pitch the constituent's case uh, to my mom and dad. Wow. Um, but the real lesson I learned there was my mom and dad never asked me whether it was a Democrat or Republican was calling or whether it was somebody put up a yard sign or gave them a check or whatever. They want to know what the problem was and whether they could solve it. And it was a real inspiration from a young time that that you can actually do things to make a difference for, for people. Yeah, I would imagine that that would resonate, especially at a young age. As, as you go to high school, um, were you involved in student council government or? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I, first of all, going to small school, I played all the sports. I mean, we, we great we athlete. Did all I hear tell you uh, probably downplay it, but I heard, I heard great athlete. Um, I knew the rules of the game. <laughs> <laughs> So do I, but I'm sitting here doing nothing with it. You play. We just played them all. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was whatever sport it was. That's the season you played. Mm-hmm. Played played all the sports, but uh, not didn't really have a lot of hops for basketball, so yeah. I never um, succeeded there. But I, anyway, um, and we kind of live in U City now because mm-hmm. that's where I used to come when I was in college. Because back then, the best uh, run that I knew about in basketball pickup was at Heeman Park. Heeman and Park so, at U City. So yeah, pl- that's so we. I always rented a, a house from somebody down there during the summers and. and law school and then at night after work i'd go out and play hoops but um uh so yeah i i I mean i was involved um real involved in boy scouts uh you know for example my eagle scout project was to take questions from kids from grade schools to ask to local politicians the mayor the police chief and then i taped a radio show on a local radio because question and answer show from the kids about the government and what what to do that was my eagle scout uh, project so we were all we were always involved uh in, in our community and you go to Missouri. Right. And at that point, are you going, you know what, I think I like the idea of maybe getting into it? Or at that point, you're focused on the law? And Well, I always knew. I, I thought I'd come home. I, and, 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 and you never know whether you can serve the public. you got to run first, and, and, and some people don't ever win. Um, so I had an idea because I came back home. I mean, I, I'm a person that was pretty self-focused. I mean, I, I went to one high school. I applied to one college. I applied to one law school. I went back home to work uh, with a firm my dad founded. I worked for them for 18 months, but they weren't paying me enough, so I left there and formed my own firm. But um, I took my dad with me. He was retiring. Uh, but I, so I've been pretty focused and, and, and looking at opportunities to uh, to serve down there. At the, at the beginning of my political career, it's kind of whether you should run for prosecutor or something else. But the state Senate seat was there, and and uh, the incumbent had only won by 350 votes uh, the time before. And I felt like Jefferson County was slipping a little bit, so mm-hmm. I, uh, I ran that campaign on uh, – on uh, our fair share was our, our theory and uh, of our, our thing and, and then ended up beating two politicians that had almost 50 years of undefeated political experience between them. The providing commissioner and the sheriff came within 100 votes of beating both of them, uh, getting more votes than both of them put together in the primary and then was elected state senate at wow. age 30. Wow. Yeah, you're very young to right. be in the state senate. Um, Before term limits. I was the only freshman. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a lot of hazing there. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> that was... Uh, what, yeah, what's, what's that like? <laughs> um, I remember going to an event in Jeff City and, uh, and I was trying to get... Uh, we were going to play. We were playing a benefit basketball game later, and I was kind of involved. In that's so why I was trying to get the players. There was another senator that was a decent player. His, his high school coach was Eddie Sutton. But um, oh, wow. anyway, so I was trying to get us to go uh, practice, and, and and he was being late because he was talking to folks. And he said, "Well, son, if you get my car for me, I'd appreciate it." Then another senator 
told me that one of the Senate rules was I had to pick him up each morning at home and, and then take him home at night if he had a drink. And it was only about halfway through the first year that I realized <laughs> I didn't really have to do that. <laughs> so there were a number of things like that. Those are the ones I can tell publicly. But the, the uh, but I, we got, I got stuff done. I was pretty scrappy. Yeah. I, mean, I felt like uh, my district had the same number of people that theirs did, and I wasn't going to take any steps backwards. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, how much different... Was it then? We're talking, what, what years are we talking here? I was elected in 1986. Okay. So I took office in January of 87, served a, a full term, reelected, then uh, ran for uh, uh, attorney general in 92. Okay. How different, I realize we're kind of looking at it, you know, now you're not in the mm-hmm. trenches anymore, but you're certainly familiar with the trenches. You're okay. not very far removed from it. Is it now versus, you know, your your first I couple of years? I think things have become much more politicized. For example, in my Six years in the Missouri Senate, we only had, as, as Democrats, we only had three caucuses the whole time. Now they caucus for every vote. Everybody's caucusing all the time uh, to decide what that party's position is. We we represented our area, and I worked with Fred Dyer from St. Charles County because Jefferson County and St. Charles County were real similar. Ed Quick from Clay County, Harold Caskey from Cass County. It wasn't what party you were from. It was more what your district was. It was a lot less partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, before term limits, it was just a, a little different feel uh, to it. Um, I, enjoy, I mean, good people run now. I'm not saying it's it's, it's bad now, but before term limits uh, was a, was a whole different deal. So, do you think it's term limits, or do you think it was something else that's made it more partisan? I think the explosion of dollars. I mean, it, money's always been involved in politics. Don't get me wrong, but this uh, the the money that's unreported, plus these these coordinated committees and all that sort of stuff. I think all of that teams at forward. And in, in the information age, uh, quite frankly, at a time which we have access to more information, people as far as politics are getting, you know, less information. And quite frankly, they are tailoring the information that comes to them, or at least alternative, into, you know, artificial intelligence is to mirror what their positions are already. Mm-hmm. You, you almost get verification for your, your position. And I think that puts people in, in camp. So it's a little different than it used to be. But I, I, I stress everybody, there's there's a rational path down the middle. I felt as governor, even though I had two-thirds of the opposite party in both the House and the Senate, we were able to get a lot done. And I, I still think that uh, that there's a path down the middle. I don't want people to be cynical about this. All these things have cycles. You know, uh, Jack Danforth is somebody I've been lucky enough to get to know. Obviously, somebody you know, right. uh, working at the same firm as, as Senator Danforth. And you ran against Senator Danforth in 1988. Am I correct? Yeah, 1996, I get a phone call from... Somebody saying that I, had, when I'd run for re-election, I had just gotten the most votes than anyone ever gotten running in statewide history. So my press secretary runs up and says, "Man, the press is calling records, most votes ever. Should we say something?" And I said, "No, nah, I don't think we should." And they said, "Well, why not?" And I said, "You might want to look at that record book because I currently hold both ends of that record. When I ran against Stanford, I got the fewest number of votes than anybody ever got running statewide, and now I got the most. So we don't want to bring you know, bring that but up. But you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, it. Uh, so uh, a lot of respect for him. Uh, um, but bottom line is that uh, yeah, the, these uh, the, these trends move around. Yeah. Well, I, when I've had him, we've we've had lunch, we've had conversations. He's been on the show, and." Even though he's coming at it from the Republican perspective, you're coming at it from the Democrat perspective. You both say something similar regarding the voting base's perception of what is transpiring. In other words, the gatekeepers of the information are framing the discussion so as to divide. And, that's and, and where- they also attack you if you get outside your lane. 
you know, if you're if you're known in a certain position in a certain lane, if you nuance it even a little bit, sometimes the special interest groups won't 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 uh, won't appreciate that. But that, that once again, I'm not gonna, I'm not here as a critic of democracy. Democracy is ever involving and, and important. I think it's really important for people to be involved. It's a reflection of the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't much worry about the politicians. I worry about the electorate. That's where the action is. You uh, we mentioned uh, the attorney general run and an incredibly popular attorney general, which then leads to the governor's office. And the thing I remember, and I was a college student at the University of Missouri Journalism School, and I remember I loved the no-call list. That was my thing. I'm like, I'll vote for Jay Nixon because I love the no. I'm a single-issue voter, no-call list. <laughs> but I loved the no-call list. And, and tell the audience. For those I'm who just really know. proud of the way we enforced it, too. I mean, people were getting, looking at it from the numbers perspective, the attorney general's office gets about, when I was there, about 110 to 120,000 consumer complaints a year that we dealt with. Um, before we had the no-call list, the number one complaint was obviously telemarketing fraud. People were getting hammered. Uh, and I know everybody needed to get new siding for their house every three or four months uh, or switch <laughs> telephone carriers or whatever. And so we passed this bill. It was relatively weak. Um, it exempted a whole bunch of groups. But we were able to litigate our way into making it a much stronger bill l- later on. The bottom line is by the time I was done with as attorney general, of that 120,000 consumer complaints, uh, we went from having almost 2,800 the first year that, that I checked on telemarketing fraud down to fewer than 100. So the bottom line is it had a great prophylactic value to stop consumer fraud. Not only did it make your dinner quieter, mm-hmm. uh, it, it had a, a really solid effect for the state. We ended up having uh, over 3 million households uh, cooperating with us on that. Wow. Well, the popularity of attorney general leads to the, the gubernatorial run. Um, as the thought process goes on, and you're, we've talked about your family, is that something that uh, you're like, this was the natural progression to become Missouri governor? Well, I mean, if you're going to live in a circus, it's better to be a ringmaster than one of the animals. You know, I mean, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it's a it's a clear move up. And by that time, you know, I'd really focused on a lot of state issues. And when you're a statewide office holder for 16 years, the way I was as attorney general, you really begin to know the Missouri is a fascinatingly complex and challenging political state to understand. And people in various regions don't talk to each other very well. People in St. Louis really don't talk to people in Kansas City and, and Maryville to Cape or whatever. And so you're, you're part of your responsibility is to try to weave that together if you're a statewide official. And I became kind of interested in how to how to do that. And how did you wind up doing it? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the first question you ask, you're a small town guy. I mean, I think that presents a set of values that people think about before they think about whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. The DeSoto Dragon is more, you know, small town guy. Uh, That's the values. You grow up in your church, you grow up in your sports, you grow up in a community where um, you were much more worried if if the if the cops turned the lights on that they were going to take you home than you were if they were going to take you to the station. <laughs> you know, it's one of those kind of towns. <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the bottom line is I think that you can, through values, begin to – and then listening to people and understanding and appreciating the broad range of opinions people have. Uh, but I really think that the, the, the small town stuff and then, then obviously the cities are a, a strong area. But I, I just think that the value un, – connecting with people at a values level – gives them an ability to trust you mm-hmm. that will hopefully allow you to lead instead of just react to what the public is. The other thing, I I don't know what people say about behind my back, but I, I tell the truth, you know, and if you do that a long time, people start understanding that you're being relatively righteous about the responsibility you have. Which clearly leads to more success because you win re-election quite comfortably over Dave Spence in 2012, <laughs> so much so that then there start becoming national rumblings about Jay Nixon in Washington, D.C., whether it be a presidential run or the absolute 
ideal vice presidential candidate. In 2014, you spoke with Politico magazine uh, regarding a possible presidential run. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but if Hillary Clinton didn't run, then you were going to be inclined to, well, to at least I, I consider just think it? Well, I think that on, on our side, I mean, she kind of had we, – we acted like Republicans that year. We just – chose who was going to be in supporting out Bernie and, and others kind of uh, uh, played that out a little bit. And obviously she wasn't the strongest candidate, but I um, it was just not in the cards uh, to, to take on uh, Team Clinton. Plus, uh, uh, former President Clinton was someone who had been helpful and supportive of me for a, a long time. So that's an awkward spot. Yeah, it just it, uh, um, so it just wasn't uh, what in the cards. And that's fine. Yeah. The, the quote was, there's still a wide avenue to run as a moderate centrist, somebody who thinks about working people every day, Democrat in the heartland. And as I'm reading that quote, I'm thinking to myself, if there's something that you could do an autopsy on the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, you would say that might be exactly who she missed in the in Yeah, the I general. think in a lot of ways our party has been defined by externally by folks as a party of an entitlement instead of a party of work. I mean, if you think back in the history of this, this, this especially when you can look at Missouri, how many used to be Catholic working folks voted Democrat, you know, and all uh, and Methodists did and all that sort of stuff. And somehow that's slipped away a little bit and, and our party's become a little bit more identified by identity politics, which groups there are. Um, and, and I think that that has, that has hurt it and quite frankly will continue to drag. And I do believe that a voice from the heartland needs to be heard in national, uh, politics and heard strongly because we're, we are, uh, uh, and a vitally important part to what's great about America. I'm sure plenty of people would look on the outside of of your political career and say August 2014 was a defining time. Uh, and that, of course, is Ferguson. Mm -hmm. What do you recall about that, that Saturday, Sunday, and then ensuing Monday of Michael Brown and Ferguson? Yeah, I mean, just real quickly, I mean, the first time I knew anything happened, unfortunately, murders happen in your state when you're governor. And you, uh, I'm not saying you ignore them, but uh, uh, they happen. And, and it's not part of your duty. You're not a prosecutor anymore. Uh, so the first time I knew anything was when I picked up the Post-Dispatch on that Sunday and saw the the front picture. And I thought, that, you know, leaving uh, uh, Michael Brown in the ground for four and a half hours while his mom was there, it's not going to go well. Uh, and other neighbors and whatnot, regardless of what the facts were as to whose fault or anything of that nature. Um, and so I, it felt so Monday morning uh, I was on the phone with uh, – uh, Charlie Dooley and the, and the other folks in in the area indicating I thought that an investigation would be helpful if we had both federal and state. So I wanted to reach out to the Justice Department to make sure as the interviews were done that we had both FBI as well as local mm -hmm. uh, sheriff folks doing it because you could just tell it was going to be one of those things. And then uh, later that evening, the next day was in at uh, uh, Reverend Blackman's church uh, in a prayer service listening to folks. And, and so we, we tried to get situational awareness. It, that, that's one in which there was just a lot of angst out there and a lot of, a lot of concern. Uh, from folks. And, uh, you know, once then the uh, some of the pictures, I remember the, seeing the pictures with the guns pointed at the kids and all that, and, and, and the large uh, kind of Humvees and whatnot. And uh, a lot of the business leaders was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It's like not good for St. Louis. So that's when we worked to to uh, to bring in uh, the other folks folks to help. But it was a long and difficult summer. But I'm the one thing I can I can clearly say is that we had two pillars in the response. I mean, speech and safety. Uh, were our two things. And on the safety side, no one else was shot. No one else was hurt on either side, uh, even though it was very kinetic, obviously. Uh, as far as speech, no one can complain that there wasn't enough freedom of speech during that time period. Okay, that, that's, of course. Uh, but so it, it really wasn't about, at the time, it didn't feel it was about about me or anything. But it, it, it was used as a, as a, as a time in which 
which folks could kind of lash out uh, about challenges and problems they'd had in the past. And we just found ourselves at the vortex that Missouri, unfortunately, has been at the vortex. The same or similar, probably equally, if not more difficult to deal with, were the desegregation cases in St. Louis and Kansas City that brought to a close when I was when I was uh, attorney general. Mm-hmm. Those were very, very difficult to deal with. So I have been placed as a as a uh, uh, as a guy from DeSoto, Missouri, <laughs> right in the center of some major racial issues. And, and I tried to be consistent and calm, but it was just uh, um uh, let's just put it this way. Uh, no politician of any sort gets good press during a riot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who is? And, and, and when something's bad is going on in the city or in the state, even if you aren't yeah. responsible, it obviously yeah. comes to you. Not, you know it's, that. It's not Harry your fault. Truman. I mean, it's not your responsibility. Right. The buck stops here. Uh, the other thing I want to say to you and to everybody else in St. Louis, I thought that the local media was was very responsible, very appropriate. Uh, the one thing that some of the national folks, they would – You'd have a quiet night, and one little thing would happen, and that would lead the news in the next day. I think some of the some of those national folks were 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 headed towards ratings as yeah, opposed true. to. And now, once again, I'm not. I believe in the fourth state, and you guys should have a, a great deal of freedom and whatnot. But the, if you look at what was written and what was said, the difference between the local and regional media and the national media was pretty significant in that. Event. I'm curious in your position uh, when you have a situation like this, the eyes of the nation are on this municipality in St. Louis, um, and you, whether you're going back to your hotel in St. Louis, you're going back to your home in Jefferson City, and you know you have literally fires burning, physical fires right. burning in St. Louis. Who are you talking to? Uh, is it you're talking to your wife and advisors to try to rationalize what the best way to handle a situation is that really is a no-win but to try to mitigate as much as possible of the damage. Well, we were talking to a lot, a lot of folks. I mean, obviously, uh, um, you have your emergency management folks that that you're dealing with the, uh, all during the night, and we would check back at the end of the evenings, usually around two o'clock. We we'd have a conference call or a video conference call to talk about about that. I was also reaching out to a number of uh, local and national leaders. I remember one night we were we were going to push forward a curfew because we, we just wanted things to stop at 12 because it seemed like a little like, uh, you know, kind of like the state fair can be two events, one during the day when everybody's getting cotton candy and one at night when they're getting brewskis and rumbling <laughs> a little bit, you know, um, and it seemed like that, too, because during the day you had a lot of peaceful protesters just wanting to speak out about racial injustice and all that sort of stuff, but it got late in the night and things got, got a little difficult. I remember one night sitting in a hotel room here talking to the president of the NAACP National, the the Urban League National, and all these folks, because they have they, they don't like curfews. They think it limits rights. And so we were trying to work through the issues about whether that was necessary or not. We ended up pulling it back a couple of days later. But you're trying to reach out and pick up as much intelligence uh, uh, about what's really going on as you can. And, and also focus on making sure people stay safe. I mean, yeah. I, like I said, if people want to protest. If you're if it's democracy and you're in public office, if people can't laugh at you or yell at you, uh, then you're not you better get a different business. That's OK. I mean, I, I don't mean it's good, but it's just the reality of it. And. And so that that part was not the focus. I, I, we didn't have like a press strategy or a image strategy. Right. We were trying to get us through, and that's why, even though the smart thing to do politically once once the kinetic activity was over, just to walk away from, instead appointed a Ferguson commission, saw that through, reformed our municipal courts, have done a whole bunch of other things to try to get the long term solutions uh, that we that that hopefully can make a, a difference for the region uh, and and the, and the country. But it was it was a challenging time, and you listen to. I'm not saying I don't listen to my my. Uh, my wife, I, I do listen to her, um, and she's very opinionated, um, but uh, in a in a in a uh, positive way in public. Um, 
Well, no, yeah, spouses no, are going to yeah, be sure. your, your greatest oh, supporter, your greatest critic. I, I mean, know, there's nothing I wrong know, with it. You don't want you don't want to get the fake stuff from right, your, right, your, right. Your, uh, your husband or wife. And and you had folks on the ground that were helpful. I mean, uh, um, Captain Johnson was was helpful. Some of the things that, that that he was picking up, some of the some of the undercover folks uh, that were out there were, were helpful. Some of the political leaders. Um, I mean, we're talking to Senator Sheed a number of times about things going on. Uh, out there, I never had really good mojo with uh, uh, Chappelle Nadal. That was never that was. If you recall, when that happened, they she was on TV ads uh, saying to override a veto of mine. Uh, so it wasn't like we were best buds when that's all started. Sure. Yeah, no, that's not going to play. Understandably, in November of 2014, uh, St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCullough, who was in that chair just right. a few weeks ago. Uh, announces that they will not be following through with an indictment. And that is that then leads to a second set of Ferguson riots. And one of the focal points that people isolate on is the National Guard and what transpired, whereas Clayton was fine, but Ferguson burned. And I'm curious what went on, because there are narratives out there, but you, of course, know what went on. Well, I mean, I, like I say, every false narrative that's out there, the bottom line, we were working to make sure. Uh, we thought there might be, might be more activity in Clayton. We we we, we had that place pretty hardened. Uh, and a lot of stuff, ha- you know, when you talk about the, the National Guard, I mean, folks don't talk about that. But one of the things that happened on, on Halloween was that all the power went out in Ferguson. Um, that wasn't accidental. Uh, and so part of our preparation was to make sure that we had the National Guard guarding all of the power substations, Mm -hmm. uh, that we had the National Guard at fire stations and police stations so that the cops and the firefighters could get on out, and we held the bases for them to make sure the mechanics went well. So what we were is a significant supportive role to the folks that had the the history on the the streets and on on the ground. As far as uh, the buildings burning down, I mean, the, 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 the one chap that was yelling and screaming one of the relatives that's not what he said on the psa the day before let's put it that way um and, and um then then you know you have to make the the folks on the ground have to make decisions and once uh once there was some gunfire that night i mean you're not going to send a firefighter in with a bill a, a human being is worth more than a building uh i will i won't lose one ounce of sleep uh if if you have a, a building goes down but uh, but that can be rebuilt and are being rebuilt uh but you don't have any uh anybody hurt uh, in that situation, once once gunfire gets going, you, you, fire, you can't send firefighters into an area where there's gunfire. You just cannot do it. it you're privy to information that, that nearly everyone else listening to this, of course, not privy to. When you look back on those series of months, are there are there moments, are there things, are there a decision that you go, ah, if I could go back and do that differently I would with the information I have in that yeah, moment. No, that, I mean, that's the key. Yeah, of course, yeah, it's I, easy to Monday morning quarterback when you know the outcome. But. Well, I mean, but but let's 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 put it in context. Racial issues are very difficult. Racial and civil justice issues are very difficult. And and you had a death here and an ongoing investigation. And public safety issues are important. So this is a this is a difficult soup to to uh, to, to to manage your way uh, manage your way through. Uh, but certainly there's things you, you you would you would do differently if you had full information. I don't think we got much from the from the curfew that I talked about before. That didn't that, that wasn't a, even though it's on the list of techniques you should you you might look at. Uh, it's 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 not something. That, that you you would normally do, uh, you would want the the announcement not to be at eight thirty at night. You know, there was a series of reasons why uh, it got drugged to that time. I mean, uh, Prosecutor McCullough. Um, there are some people that, that continue to say that I should have answered the call to 
under the state of emergency, remove McCall as the prosecutor. Remember, if you recall, oh, there was yeah. a huge heat oh, about, yeah. oh, appoint somebody else. I just didn't feel it was that governors should, should do that. Bob had been reelected with overwhelming numbers. He had responsibility. He had experience, whether you agree or disagree with him. He runs an incredibly professional office. And... Uh, even though I was under a lot of pressure, met with all the African-American mayors, everybody else, get rid of McCullough, you know, do what you want. Uh, I just didn't think that you, if you look at it historically, would you really want a governor every time he declares a, a state of emergency to have the authority to remove elected public officials and put other people in? That's just a bad, that's a lot of power. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, it needed to play out. So I, I wish that uh, the investigation could have been done a little more quickly. Uh, also, I think that the, uh, um, how do we, how do I say this? The, the feds didn't stay quite as as tied on timing as would have been helpful. Are you referring to the 104-day difference between Bob McCullough's announcement and the Department of Justice's announcement? Yeah, or even they could have said something at the same time, too. And everybody had this. That's why I started this conversation by saying everybody had the same information. Okay. There was no different. The interviews were done with a a Fed and a state person, every one of them. Mm And I, the original thought behind that was to make sure that whatever was done, that a justice department headed by a leading African-American with an African-American president was saying one thing, uh, a uh, Caucasian governor and a Caucasian prosecutor, um, you know, and, and if all those agree, then perhaps uh, it would be good. And, and and so I don't know exactly what I what I could have done to make sure they were locked in in time there. Um, but uh, that, their that findings did. were the same, exactly. But because same. Bob McCullough's at the podium by himself, it's perceived one way versus what really wound up happening with the Department of Justice. Ex- exactly, and, and and quite frankly, the, like I said, I don't know that I could have changed that, but I think that would have, um, you know. What do you think the reasoning was on that? Um, well, I mean, it's. Uh, I think a lot of folks um, didn't want to look at the facts. You know, and and wanted to jump to conclusions. And if you're looking at that the way it was portrayed by the national media, it was that, you know, uh, an officer had, had, uh, in essence, you know, gunned down uh, somebody. And and that's that got going on the East Coast pretty good. And I think they were they were concerned about uh, being overly rational. (laughs) But I I don't know. I could change that. Um, I I would have you. Are you in contact with? Barack Obama or Eric Holder? I mean, during at various times sure. you were there. I mean, they were, they were, they didn't have as good as intel, at least the, 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 those folks up up there. And yes, I certainly talked to the president and the attorney general. Right. Uh, I, I wonder about this, and I and I mean the question with the greatest of sincerity. Your, from my standpoint, on the outside looking in, and uh, and I think a number of other people felt like your star in national politics was was rising, 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 rising. Mm-hmm. Your approval rating in Missouri sky high, reelected with ease, and talk of whether it be vice president or even president. If Ferguson doesn't happen, is Jay Nixon still in politics? Um, perhaps, but like I said, I never thought about it as a political. Uh, it it, it well, just you, wasn't you, a political you, thing to me. It, it did have some uh, obviously um, put you know, make things more more difficult. Um, if I was looking at it politically, I would have once once everybody was calm, I would have shut it down and moved on. But I wouldn't have done anything like the Ferguson Commission wouldn't have done any of the follow up things that we did. Um, but you know, I've been given unbelievable opportunity. I'm just you know, guy from DeSoto, Missouri. I got to be attorney general, senator, governor, uh, 30 years and 
public office in a row. I mean, I, Georgiana and I are very blessed. I don't, I don't, uh, the fact that I don't get to spend time in DC right now is not something that bothers me when I get up in the morning. Um, you know, I, I had a chance, I w- w- would have had a chance and I, I still look forward to perhaps at some point being in the cabinet or whatever. I, I'd like to, you know, some, some, uh, positions where you can continue to make a difference. But, uh, uh, we had a, a very impactful run and got to see a whole lot of stuff and, and, I don't have any, many regrets. Yeah. I'm, this is this is something that when I told people I was going to be interviewing you, they couldn't wait to hear. Okay, uh, and that is the story of the St. Louis Rams. Um, I recall, and I and I felt like there was something weird going on way before. I mean, I don't even th- I think uh, I don't even know if you were in office yet. And I recall reading a quote from Dan Deardorff and saying, "Listen, if we don't get things going, and we're talking 2007 or 2008 here. If we don't get things going, they might move again." And people are going, they just built a new stadium in 1995. It opened in 1995. What in the world could we possibly be doing in St. Louis in 2007 with a new stadium? But there was that infamous clause in the lease that gave an out. Looked like Shad Khan was going to buy the team. Stan Kroenke exercises his right of first refusal. And away we go. You announce, I want to make sure my dates are correct, the task force in late 2014, correct? Uh, and talking with Dave Peacock, who also has been a guest on the show, and I've gotten to know him, he says things were going on behind the scenes before the task force was announced. So if you could, whether it be going back to 2007, obviously you're not in, in governor's office at that point, to the time that you announced the task force, what was going on with you, whether it be Dave Peacock, Stan Kroenke, leading up to that moment of announcing the task force where it became public? One of the reasons I'm here today, not only is a respect for you and, and what you do, uh, but also it's a little longer format where you can actually talk and you'll cut it down and find the, I, the, the, I, I let the, it go. the outrageous <laughs> stuff I say. You'll clip it. I can, I can deal with that. Believe me, somebody will tweet something I said. But um, uh, I know Stan Kroenke. I mean, we played basketball together. I mean, How about you know, that? Yeah, I mean, he's in college at Mizzou. It's basically the same time that I was. And, you know, I've and, and, and whatnot played in benefit basketball games, played in a benefit basketball game against uh, uh, with him. And then we played against Tyron Lue one night. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How would you do there? <laughs> uh, we had Sunvolt on our team. We oh, did just well, fine. Yeah, we did just fine. <laughs> Lue was a high school kid. He oh, okay. and Cookie Belcher. Cookie uh, the, Belcher. The, the I remember those guys. Yeah, he went to Nebraska. Nebraska, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, but uh, so I, I I was a good recruiter. <laughs> John Sunvolt had just come out of the NBA and and somebody started jawing him, and he just started lighting him up. He had in his benefit game; he had like fifty-two points, <laughs> so I didn't have to do too much. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I know. And then, obviously, I was involved when the, going back in history when they came here the first time. If you recall, I mean, the NFL voted no the first time. I right. threatened to sue him. I was sitting in an airport in Chicago with lawyers in four different courtrooms around the country, getting ready to sue the NFL as they were voting, uh, and they switched their votes and vote and and uh, and come our way. So I've I've got a long history as far as. Uh, knowing these players and, mm-hmm. and dealing with them, uh, the owners and and and, and others, and, and at that time Stan was coming in as somebody that was helping to have a local businessman and, and close the deal. Yes. So I mean I have a lot of context here, and these are people I know. I mean not, this is not like some random group of of owners. Um, so when the rumors began that that uh, the Rams were looking to move, and I think that was played out through the stadium you know you had the arbitration right. you had a uh, uh, and all of that sort of stuff you kind of figured if they were willing to litigate the stadium issue and then when that arbitration completed even if you built what the arbitrator said 700 million dollars worth of stuff they still weren't making a, a commitment to stay what they really wanted during that process was to get to that 
year-to-year part of the lease. They gave them an option to go out year-to-year if the stadium doesn't meet it. So what we could, what we felt during an arbitration was handled by the CVC, not us, but I was clearly watching it. So to be clear, even if you would have agreed to that proposal, because there were two competing proposals, the arbitrator sides with the Rams, even if the state of Missouri, the city of St. Louis, built what they put on the table, they still could have theoretically moved? I th- I, they never would come to the table and say they would do that. We weren't going to do that, right. but, but they wouldn't come to the table and... Uh, they they wouldn't do that. I, I all I'm saying is looking back on it as you see the steps. Sometimes you get more enlightenment after conversations than you do before. Mm-hmm. Um, was that what they were setting up was trying to get to the year to year so that they wouldn't be violative of the lease for damages, uh, artists, season ticket holders, and others in, in the region. That part of that process was a pretty well orchestrated uh, effort to get out of the long-term lease and into the year-to-year legally. And now once you get that context in your head, then they were wanting to go. Uh, And so we needed to compete. And competing was not just the Rams. It was the league because the league has to to vote to allow them to move. I mean, the interesting difference between the NFL and, like, MLS, okay? MLS is a corporation and teams own stock, okay? The NFL is like a group of, you know, Barons or whatever. You know? <laughs> That's <laughs> a perfect word. <laughs> they run. They, they run their own deal, um, and you and whatnot. So we pushed the league hard. I met with Goodell a number of times. A number of times. When was the members. first meeting? Do you have I don't have the date early. I, rel- relatively early. Once I started seeing what the, I went up there, made an appointment, sat down with uh, Roger and the, and all the lawyers up there, and just said we're gonna we're gonna fight for our teams. It's like any other business. If a business is talking about leaving the state and you're governor of the state, whether it's business people know or they don't know, you fight like heck for them. And in this situation, it was going to be a little bit more complicated. And then I got... Uh, was so, this before or after you announced the task force? Um, both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we so kept up pretty... before yeah, you announced yeah, the task force? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The task force was basically to, to give us a, a mechanical operation to move forward and a way to, to get the real estate lined out. And plus, we made a, a combined decision then that what we wanted to do is, is, is redo the riverfront. I mean, mm-hmm. I stood in that press conference down there and said, if we don't build the stadium, you're going to have the same view... 30 years from now, and guess what? That was eight years ago, seven years ago, and that same view is the same, okay? And that's a, it's a site that needs to get cleaned up and, and dealt with. Um, so, yeah, met with the league before, after, during, a number of times, met with a number of owners. I mean, what the ownership are you from Goodell at that point? Um, I, and i got to be careful what I say because there's ongoing litigation, other right. than to say that, uh, you know, it was clear to us that, that uh, um, you know, we were we – were, Doing what it took, and if you look at what the vote of the of the uh, the executive committee, committee on the relocation yeah, of Los I Angeles mean, five to one right. in favor of Carson, yeah. the, the Chargers which, and Raiders, which project. means uh, yes, yeah. it's good. So I don't know what the point of that committee was. Well, um, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time with. Them. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite sure what was going on. Yeah, there. it's uh, it's uh, but so we were doing things like that. I was dealing with that sort of stuff. Dave and Blitz were dealing with getting the property set up, getting the financing um, set up. We had a little. Uh, additional resources through the through the CVC and the regional stadium authority, so they're able to do that without general revenue or city money being being spent in that situation. Well, let me ask this, just going back real quickly, and I apologize for interrupting, I want to no, make sure no, I ask this. No. 2010, I believe, was the year Stan Kroenke exercised his right of first refusal with Shad Khan. He then becomes the, the owner. In between 2010 and when it is on the record that the two of you did meet December 2015 in St. Louis with, with Stan, uh, were there any meetings in the early part of 2010, with, 11, with you and Steve. no, that was the, that was the. I mean, we were communicating team to team, but that was the the only during a relevant time period, the only one on one long term right. meeting at Rams Park. With okay, him. 
because the, the reason I asked that question, I had a number of conversations with Kevin Demoff throughout this whole process, most of like 95% of which were off the air. And I said, be honest with me here. And I felt like for the most part he was. I feel like he said a lot of things that I'm surprised he said in these conversations. And this, these were just me and him and they were off the record and I respect that. But this one I said I do want to be able to discuss publicly. When Stan brought, bought the team, the feeling around here is that he knew he was going to move that team to Los Angeles when he exercised that right of first refusal. And Kevin said, I know no matter what I say, you're not going to believe me, but what I'm telling you is we knew this. We knew that we were either going to get a great deal in St. Louis or we would have the option to go and do a great deal for us somewhere else. And that goes back to the lease. So anybody thinking that they knew they were going to meet, move to Los Angeles in 2010, he says that's not true. Now, whether or not that's true or not, I don't know, but I w- that's why I want to. Do- I don't. I don't. I, I think the a young man from Cole Camp, Missouri, who's a decent basketball <laughs> player, whose son went to the University of Missouri and played basketball there, whose family still is just located around Central Missouri in a significant way. Uh, I don't think he bought that team to move it. Uh, ultimately, later on, value wise, I think all these folks get get they see the numbers, and a team in L.A. is worth you know what, $1.7 billion more than a team in St. Louis just because of the media market. Mm-hmm. And I think they all get uh, kind of um, uh, lured into uh, to, to that sort of thinking. But um, And I think he became a little more distant from the business community here, a little more distant from uh, um, from it, and I think that it became more of a, of a, of a money deal than it mm-hmm. did a sports deal. But what we always heard was, it takes two. St. Louis, Missouri isn't coming to the table. So, yes, yeah, Stan's not coming to the table. But what became the narrative in St. Louis was, well, they're trying to get Stan to the table, but he won't come to the table. And I have some friends who are in Los Angeles in a way associated with the organization. They say people in St. Louis got to understand there there was there's some blood on the hands of St. Louis on this, but it doesn't get talked about. And out here, Stan's not going to talk and, and Kevin's not going to talk at this point. But there's more to the story than has been told. I don't know what the blood would be when the people of the city of St. Louis and the people of the region and the people of, of Missouri are, are willing to put together what's a very difficult political deal to build a brand new billion dollar stadium and redevelop the riverfront. Um, uh, if, if somebody wants to talk about us not, not doing our part, um, that that's a discussion I'd certainly be willing to have in public or in private. Sure. Cause I think we, we did, you compare us to Minnesota, you compare us to other things. We, we had a, a doable deal on the table. That's why five of the six members of that of that committee uh, went our way. I, I, my theory on it, Jay, is that you had a situation where they thought it was going to be a layup that St. Louis and Missouri was not going to be able to pull off what you eventually were able to pull off, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, now we've got to... We, we, we did make it difficult. I, I yeah. agree. I, th- that is very, very insightful because I think that they, they did not think we had the capacity to do what we did, but... but uh, um, you know, we competed, and, and quite frankly, we had a, a. These are the five of the six folks who voted our way. These are all other billionaires. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these are not. These are business people. That, and the that one was the doing. Kansas City Chiefs owner, uh, Clark. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think. Um, and um, Did I you think get that, his reasoning on that. Um, I like Clark's a, Clark's a friend, and I will leave our conversations. But he, <laughs> you know, he, he's he's been helpful. I, I think on the soccer side, he's also was a was a force that was helpful. Um, that uh, you sit here and talk about sports. I mean, one of the big misses we had was, 
Um, look at Atlanta and the MLS. Oh. Look at look at soccer. The, mm-hmm. the the millennial sport is not here, and it could have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we would have had a little more involvement from the county and the region and things like that, and the voters uh, uh, in that deal, or if that original deal that we had negotiated what was better for everybody that got thrown out when when uh, others came into office. I mean, but that's a whole nother yeah. another deal. But I, I just think missing out on MLS is going to be. I don't want to switch it from football. To, no, it's fine. I, it's part soccer's of the not a sport I understand very well. I, every time I played it, they like raise these colored cards. And then, then I, <laughs> that means you were probably following somebody. <laughs> that means you might have been a little aggressive in DeSoto. Is there a lot of soccer in DeSoto? No, there's not. I, would, no, there's I was about not, to say, no, I don't think not. that would have flown no, very not. well. I get to college, and then, then, then you know, they, you're playing in all these intramural stuff, and they need sure. players. Yeah, they're, you're like, fine. I'll big, go on marginally yeah. athletic guys stand between the the ball and the goal. And then I just, you know, you take guys out. And you're not. You know, so, <laughs> you ready for politics. I should have been lacrosse. I should have played lacrosse right across check or something. But it, so, so anyway, sorry to get you. No, no, it's great. That's what a podcast is. We're all over the map. Uh, it's my responsibility to make sure I remember where where I was going. So, December 2015, you meet with Stan Kroenke. Is he checking a box, or is there intent to try and get something done? Because two months later, less than two months later, less than 45 days later, there's the vote in Houston, and they're gone. So, well, like I said, I mean, I, I want to be very careful what I say because there's ongoing litigation. Other than to say that that we we had a, a discussion and and. Uh, just the two of us and just the two of you yeah um, two old friends from columbia missouri um yeah you know, we know each other i mean a little bit and and uh um you know i think his intentions were clear at that point that they were going to do everything they could to to move to la mm-hmm. and the day comes i remember hosting the show that day and i'm thinking this is such a pivotal moment because in my mind i was hopeful somehow that there would be a comeback victory uh, and then you see the vote, five to one from the committee. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And then the first vote comes out, and there's not en- enough votes to for either one, Carson or Englewood. And then they have a closed-door, anonymous vote, which they don't do for anything but Super Bowls and the commissioner. And then all of a sudden, the closed door, and they come out, and suddenly it has aggressively changed to Englewood with reports from Peter King, the Jerry Jones gave a win-win for the Gipper-type speech and said, hey, Stan Kroenke's don't grow on trees. This guy can privately finance a building in Los Angeles. It's time to make this happen. I think the good thing about this is that you all are going to get to, you all in the fourth estate are going to get to, to see what the story was during a trial in downtown St. Louis sometime in the next couple of years. Can't wait. Bart that, Scott. That's, that's my Bart I mean, Scott I, moment. I, I mean, Can't wait. We can, we can, you and I can talk and we can think what people are thinking, but people get pretty honest when they put that left hand in the Bible and the right hand in the air in front of the judge. Okay? So I think the story, I mean, we got all, and once again, since our, our firm is partially involved, I also want to go back for a second and thank two great great leaders here in this region that were incredibly helpful to us with their time, uh, which was Dave Peacock and Bob Litz. I mean, that that that's Dave spent a lot of time and did a lot of uh, spent a lot of his own resources and, and gave up a lot of his time. Um, uh, they they really uh, um, served the region well. Unfortunately, we didn't win, but I, right. I, I really want to thank them for that. Well, you brought you bring up Dave and Dave. I think when he had I don't know outburst wouldn't be because that wouldn't be fair. He he conveyed his frustrations verbally the night of the MLS vote which I think was the byproduct of the compounded frustration from the NFL and the MLS. Well, you get a guy who's president of Bush, the company gets sold, and he wants to give back to his community. He does so in two big ways. Didn't send a bill to anybody for any of all the time. He could have been doing a whole lot of other stuff, making a lot of money and, and, and doing things he did, and he gave that back. And I think he was frustrated mm-hmm. uh, that, that neither one of those got over the bar. Yeah, I, and, and I think in the back of his mind that it didn't matter what you, Dave, Bob, everybody in St. Louis was going to do this team was going to go to Los Angeles. And that's tough to accept 
Um, yeah, no, it's really tough to accept. I mean, uh, I had a friend of my son say, eight perfect Sundays are gone from St. Louis. <laughs> and he lives downtown. It's like, it's all day. Yeah. Uh, and not being an NFL team. I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard. I'm not as much of a fan as I Absolutely used to be. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I don't even know who's getting drafted or who, what they are don't and all that attention. sort of stuff. And I, uh, um, it's it's just really extremely frustrating, especially as a guy that was involved in getting the team to come sure, here. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you saw the both ends of, of the whole thing. So along those lines, with that taking place, I think what has transpired, a couple of things that we've already talked about, briefly touched on MLS, certainly talked about the Rams and talked about Ferguson. And I realize you're from DeSoto, but it's not like DeSoto's like, you know, 10 hours away. It's just oh. down uh, south from St. Louis. I feel like there has been a realization in St. Louis, that there is a need for change. Um, And I'm curious what your perspective is, especially coming from the office you held for eight years and uh, a a great deal of success in that office, and now residing in St. Louis and practicing law in Clayton, what you see. Um, What I see is, is, is a region that needs a few unifying concepts to move forward. A region that's not growing fast enough but it's got unbelievably great people. I'll give you a kind of a duality here. My wife is originally from Jefferson City. Her father was commissioner of education in the state. She was she's a lawyer and she was worked in New York, came back here. I, I ruined that career. <laughs> and, um, but the bottom line is, um, while she knew St. Louis, obviously we serve, she has really fallen in love with this town living here. I mean, uh, and and this St. Louis has got unbelievably positive things going on and fascinating people and great things. And it's like we all sometimes talk down talk ourselves down a little bit too but i think until you have a unifying concept and, and there, there's different ways to come about that obviously the governance issues are very very real i mean um you have a lot of government 100 cities and the city of st louis is a separate county and city at the same time and all these things the the regions that have moved forward have been ones where they've been able to get cohesive leadership you know pick a a the unified government in Kansas City on the sure. other side. I mean, you, we can go through Louisville's. You can go through um, Indianapolis did some things. Uh, those cities that are able to say, we're going to compete worldwide. we got to have everybody. <laughs> we can't have Warson Woods be different than Clayton. Everybody's got to be on the same team. Um, and then the other thing I think has happened, especially in some of the sports stuff, is you're asking the 300,000 population of the city of St. Louis to fund the infrastructure for the whole $2 million region and that's just not fair um and and but but one thing i'd like to well if i could just rant for just a sure. second which is away. people that give trouble about public ownership of these uh, partial ownership of these uh, facilities i mean georgiana and i went to the muni on sunday night that's owned by the city they pay a dollar a month a dollar a year lease and it's a great deal for the city okay that's a great deal you got the muni opera 100th year right there then you drive right by the dwight davis tennis center with a davis cup that's dwight davis okay those are then you have that park uh, that yes it's a public piece of property that the privates have come in through forest park forever and got another 130 million dollars they're, they're doing things with down at arch river down downtown public and private money together I just I wish folks could get over this this that the public can't be involved in these infrastructure projects for sports because they're iconic and important to the region. Um, I, it's it's just a it's just this this hurdle that that some in the in the in the uh, uh, media slash post dispatch uh, and others. Uh, uh, I'm not being negative. They just don't like public money for anything where balls are used. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like pucks at times as well. Yeah, pucks, balls, whatever. I mean, everybody's... Um, so I, I do think that 
and um, the governance structure is 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 divided. Uh, obviously, this has always been an area that has has challenging racial issues. Always has been Missouri. Um, when I was governor, I, I I like to read, try to read, um, but I couldn't read fiction while I was governor because I was so busy that I would start a book. And then by the time I got to pick it up again, I would forget where I was. Well, and it made that? me feel really right. stupid. And <laughs> you need to have some confidence. We can all relate to this. Yes. So I started reading nonfiction. Okay. So I adopted the 1870s, which I thought was an interesting time period. It's Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, governor Crittenden ran for governor of Missouri in 1880 under the theory of let's end the Civil War in Missouri in 1880. Okay. This is the guy that got, um, you know, Frank James to, to – to, uh, um, surrender to him personally. Um, but uh, bottom line is Missouri has been at that vortex uh, difficult. Little Dixie in Missouri is north. You know, mm-hmm. when the legislature after the Civil War split off and said they wanted to set up a separate legislature for the state, they went down to Carthage, Missouri, in the southern part of the state, even though it was a northern leaning. So the bottom line is these issues are very real in our state, and we're going to have to keep working on them. Um, but so you have those issues. Um and I think we've got some infrastructure issues, both the airport and well, some other things that so we've got to get to world class. Um, I did a little look at the, the where Atlanta was before they made the investment in their airport and where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not some numbers you want to look up. <laughs> they, yeah, that they look at that where how much they've moved forward um, based on some of those types of in, in investments. So I, I think that, uh, um, you know. Uh, I'm optimistic about the future of the region, but folks have got to come together. One of the things that the people do talk about, and you were making reference to it there, is the merger of the city and the county. What is your position on that? Well, I, I think you can't be as simplistic as just saying a city and a county merge because that's a difficult political complex. But we've got to do more to work people together. Certainly, I think a unified government in the long run is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Then you have less government. You have more efficiencies. Uh, but you have to make sure that you have all of the various uh, constituencies represented. Um, you don't want to. Uh, take take people out of having a having a having a part of the uh, part of the action, but I do think you're going to have to. Um, the days of needing a hundred cities in the county are long since past. Yeah. Final question for you: uh, When you look back on on your time in public office, what what do you say? You know what that was that was the most satisfying accomplishment. That is that that made it worth it. You know, all the nights where you're not sleeping, where you're in the crossfire of public criticism. Is there a moment, is there an accomplishment that, that you would consider that was it? That's what I can hang my hat on. That's what my sons can look back on and say, you know, I'm proud of my dad. Um, the, um, I don't know if there's a singular thing, but I'd say three things jump out when you ask that question. Um, I'm very, very proud of what we were able to do with parks. And, I mean, we got the Katy Trail done all the way across the state. We got another 100 miles of it uh, that's we're moving forward on in the southern section. I had 16,000 acres of parkland. Echo Bluff State Park is an unbelievable park. Um, birthed that. We took our park attendance up over 20 million. Uh, we did a whole bunch of outdoor stuff. We reintroduced elk in Missouri. Native elk are now down at Peck's Ranch. So we were able to take that outdoor economy and do some things with it that long run uh, are going to be fun because public lands being bought up east of us and we're a state that, that uh, can have a great economic benefit. Uh, uh, from there, I mean, the Joplin tornado. I mean, that yeah. was that was an incredible. I mean, May two thousand. That was just re- yeah. That was really a challenge. And and you know, as you sit here now, um, um, Joplin, Missouri, not exactly a Democratic bastion. Every morning, the first thing I read is the Joplin Globe. I still to this is that day, right? Yeah, that's the first thing when I turn on my. And that started in two thousand eleven, right? At that time, of the, at the time of yeah. the the tornado, you're trying to figure out what's going on. I remember about 
a year after the tornado calling the mayor and saying, I mean, things are like open the paper and see it. And it's like the school board's yelling at this guy and the city council's yelling at this guy. And I said, Joplin, back to normal. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, to think that that you have 7,652 houses wiped out, 976 businesses, 11,680 cars, and that you're able to, and a hospital uh, wiped out, uh, nine schools, you're able to start school on time that year. 97.4% of the kids came back. Uh, Could you believe what you saw when you saw that for the first time? It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it, it was... A EF five is different. Okay, it's just, I've I've seen a lot of tornadoes. I mean, the trouble you had after that, Georgiana and I went to a tornado down in Branson. After that, it was like an EF two, and you feel like you're standing in front of the media, the wrecked houses and stuff. Yeah. You almost feel like turn around and say, oh, "This is nothing." You, you should have seen it down there. But, yeah. but, but it's it, um, the the way that we were able to work with folks and had the strength they showed and to keep the. I was worried that it was going to be like Greenwood, Kansas, where you have nobody left. They just all leave because it's a regional economy down there. They could mm-hmm. go to. Uh, Pitt State, although Pitt State. why would you ever go to Pitt State? I mean, to see Kim. That's yeah, not a reason. Say, gonna, <laughs> say hi to Kim. You're Kim Anderson. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm not, I have not asked him for any gorilla uh, sportswear. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, Joplin is. And then I, I think that some of the things we were able to do on mental health. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of rebuilding the, the Fulton State Mental Hospital over a $211 million project. It'll be the, the, that's a difficult project to get done when you think you're building a mental hospital for criminally insane people to get better. Uh, that's hard. I mean, yeah. people who wants that in their neighborhood, we were able to get uh, that done. It hadn't been 1851 was the last time that had been done. That will open again, uh, brand new next year is the best facility is type in the country. So things like that, we're able to keep uh, as far as accomplishments, 44 percent increase in two year scholarships who are a plus program at the community colleges, 36 percent increase in college graduates, the number one in the country and keeping tuition down. And then the last piece is cars. I mean, I, I, when you look at what we we're able to rebirth the Corvette plant left here. The the plant closes down in Fenton. Uh, and we were able to, in that special session I called, not only get a pension deal and make sure that we kept our triple triple A rating, but get the investments of $600 million by GM and now building the Colorado and the Canyon right here in St. Louis and on the Kansas City side getting the F-150 and mm-hmm. other stuff. That's uh, Saving the auto industry in this state is something that uh, and I, that was my call. I mean, I called the special session. I spent better part of a month basically being the governor of Detroit. Uh, I felt yeah. like up there yeah. negotiating with yeah. those folks. But some of those things. So it's not one thing. Uh, if I was going to say one thing, it's 30 years of public service. And I think that we graduated with uh, our integrity and some portion of our sense of humor intact. And these days in this business, if you can get out and people still trust you. Uh, that's 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 a that's a hard Quite thing. Was it, it, was, it, was it tough to have that wave and then see what has transpired in the last what eighteen months in Jefferson City with your successor? You at know, I tell everybody, I, regardless of who the governor of the state of Missouri is, I get up each morning when I'm shaving, I look in the in the mirror there and I say, you know, I'm looking at the best damn governor of Missouri history right there. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just like I, you know, you try to do the best you can when yeah. it's your turn. So, yeah. And that sort of stuff. I I I see my role as supporting. We former governors support each. You know, try to be supportive of each Did other. Did you ever talk to him through? Uh, sir, yeah, yeah, sir, and I've talked to Parson. I mean, yeah, I, yeah it's a small club, and we we talk to each other, and we don't tell you what we say. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, Good. Other, that, that no. means you're doing the job. No, right. I mean, we just try to. Yeah. Try, I mean, we're very involved in the transition, trying to help them where they can. Some people listen more than others, uh, but it seems well, like people are bought in on Parsons. Maybe they just want something to believe in after what has taken place. I don't know if I, if that's a good read or a bad read. Um, no, I, I think that that uh, I like Mike. He's a friend. He was a sheriff when I was attorney general. We worked together. Um, and I took him to Brazil with me. I mean, I thought enough of him on a foreign trip. I took him to Brazil, and you know, he he 
likes beef, whatever country you're in. Um, he raises, he eats it. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's early, but I'm I'm going to be in a supportive role, whoever's governor now or for you know whenever. And and uh, um, I do think it's a much different uh, style, mm-hmm. a much more open style. Um, but uh, if if you were going to I think we got to be careful to make sure that we have an executive branch that's powerful, too, not just a legislative branch, mm-hmm. if I was going to look at longer-term trends. Sure, I understand. <laughs> uh, Jay, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. And uh, if I don't see you, uh, I will see your son on the golf course, and I can't <laughs> wait for that. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So there it is, Jay Nixon with us here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Very grateful for his time. And uh, let me tell you something, Um, you know, I was I I, I knew the situation going in regarding the Rams because his firm is involved in one of the lawsuits with the Rams. And there are many uh, that he had to uh, navigate that tactfully. But, you know, with uh, this is my read anyway, and I don't know what yours is. And I realize I can see the person I'm interviewing and, and you listening just get to hear. But uh, he, he's he got, as, as we say, as an Irish guy, uh, the Rams thing gets his Irish up. Um, in other words, it gets him fired up. And when we got on that topic and I, and I said, you know, but after all the work you did and you feel like you, you put together the plan that adhered to the guidelines that were set and it still didn't go your way. In other words, it looked like the deck was stacked against you anyway. Uh, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing the line that I'm sure many of you who just got done listening to it would remember, uh, people have a funny way of finding the truth when that left hand goes on the Bible and the right hand goes in the air. So uh, indicating that he is expecting there to be um, you know, court proceedings on this and therefore depositions. And that is what so many people just want. They want to know what really happened on that afternoon in Houston where suddenly the Committee for Relocation to Los Angeles says five to one. Carson, the Chargers and Raiders project, is the better project. And then within an hour and a half, uh, they're voting like 30 to 2 as a league with a closed-door anonymous vote meeting for Inglewood. What really happened? And uh, when I brought up the name Jerry Jones, I feel like that's uh, that's when he uh, said, oh, people have a funny way of finding the truth when they have to put that left hand in the Bible and the right hand goes in the air. So... If you are still wanting to find out what happened, well, it sounds like, according to uh, former Governor Jay Nixon, we might just get that chance. So, very grateful for his time. Hope you enjoyed the interview as well. Always welcome your feedback. Tim McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Thank you to Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team. Thank you to James Carlton and State Farm Insurance Agent in Webster Groves. And thank you to Johnny Londoff Chevrolet for their support of the podcast. For executive producer John Seymour, I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.